Okay, good morning, everyone. It's a light crowd today. Hymn 694. 694. Stanzas 1 and 2. Here, sorry, let's do that again. Thee will I love, my strength, my tower. Thee will I love, my hope, my joy. Thee will I love with all my power. With harder times shall ne'er destroy. Thee will I love, O light divine, so long as life is mine. Thee will I love, my life, my Saviour, who art my best and truest friend. Thee will I love and praise forever, for never shall thy kindness end. Thee will I love with all my heart, thou my Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O gracious God, your servant and apostle James was the first among the twelve to suffer martyrdom for the name of Jesus Christ. Pour out upon the leaders of your church that spirit of self-denying service, that they may for the sake uh, forsake all false and passing allurements and follow Christ alone, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. Verse of the week is Malachi 1.6a. Let's speak this together. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Okay, son also means just in the practical sense, children, and father in the practical sense means parents. You know, lest if you want to look at it and take it exactly literally, just word for word as it says, you think only the boys have to obey only the words of what the dad says. No, there's more to it than that. The children will honor their parents, but there's, there's more than that as well. There's two levels, or three levels here. One is the practical level. So if you're a child, and how many of you here are children? Yeah, right. That, that wasn't a trick. All of you are. If you're here, it means you're somebody's child. So there's the practical side that, uh, you know, fourth commandment, you honor your father and your mother. If you're a child, uh, you're going to do that. But there is a deeper, a couple deeper layers to this. So firstly, a son honors his father. Can you think of a deeper layer than just the practical? A believer honors God. Yes, good. Hey, a son, so we see a child of God. Because children of God are all sons. Why are you all sons? Because women didn't have any... Through baptism. Uh, it was the boys that always got everything in the girls. Okay, but why does that matter? We're heirs. are heirs through... Baptism. Through baptism. In baptism, you put on Christ. So what you need to understand is that when God the Father looks at you, He doesn't see you as you. He sees Christ. That's why we say everything is for the sake of Christ. Because when He looks at you on the outside, you look like Christ. And on the inside, you look like Christ because you're conformed to Him. You have Christ on outside. You've got a garment of righteousness. And inside, you have Christ's body and blood pumping through your very veins. 
And you have the Holy Spirit living within your heart. I mean, how can he not look at you and see you as his son? The other, the other reality is that as you are the son, then you are the heir. Uh, so you can say, you know, practically speaking, yes, there are boys and there are girls, which means that we are uh, men and women, sons and daughters of the king, as the hymn says, O sons and daughters of the king. But theologically speaking, we're all just sons of God in Christ Jesus. As Jesus is the son, so now we are all sons, because we all bear Christ. Now the Father, of course, God the Father. Okay, what's another layer deeper than that? Okay. Is Thank there a connection here between the legitimacy of the, like the sons and the, uh, uh, where uh, uh, Abraham had a son, but he also had children of the. Oh, yeah. That's a, I didn't think of that. That's a really good point, and it would be an interesting one to study further. And there may be a connection there. However, that's not the direction that I'm thinking of. And just for the sake of keeping the opening short, uh, something about... Mm. Christ, the Son. The Son honors his Father which is, of course, God the Father again. So you, then you have things like uh, Jesus when he says, the Father honors me, but you, or I honor my Father, but you dishonor me. I am honoring my Father. I am doing the will of my Father, which then leads to what does it mean that you honor? What does it mean that you as a child of God honor God the Father? And what does it mean that you who are children honor your parents? Okay. That's one thing, respect. Okay. Uh, obey, I guess. Heed, yeah, heed or obey. Bill had trouble with that. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> heed, obey. Here's one. Revere. Have proper reverence for when you when it, we fear God. You fear your parents. You don't fear your parents because of their wrath. Well, I guess sometimes you do, but uh, but typically speaking, your relationship with your parents is one of fear. But it is not. Oh, Dad's home from work. Ah! It's a reverent fear. You know, why do you call your dad Dad instead of Josh? Brian, why do you call your, your dad dad or father instead of Josh? Hey, Josh, can I come work with you? Do you say that? You say, hey, dad, can I come help you? Why? Why don't you call him by his first name? It's closer. Pardon me? It's closer when you call him father or dad than by his name. Uh, okay, yeah, it's, it's out of respect, really. And there's... If you, you, you don't get to have a familiarity with your parents like you do with your friends. You are not buddy-buddy with your parents. Now, you know, maybe when you grow up a little bit, you can, you can do things with your parents and have a relationship that you didn't when you were still a child. But, but for, certainly when you are a child, you are not best friends with your parents. Or at least you shouldn't be. You are there to revere them and familiarity is something that hinders your ability to respect your parents. So you don't, I don't call my dad Mike, or I didn't growing up. Now every now and then I do it just to be funny when he answers the phone and say, well, hey, Mike, what's up? But that's just the kind of guy I am. But growing up, he wasn't ever Mike. You don't call, I don't call my dad Mike. I don't call my dad Michael. I call him dad. Dad. And the reason that you do that is because there is a distance between you. And when you start calling somebody by their first name and becoming familiar with them, you're bridging a distance 
that is there intentionally. That's why, by the way, I go by Pastor Ferguson and not, hey, I'm Pastor E or Pastor Eman. I don't like that because then that is bridging a gap that is supposed to be there. There is supposed to be a distance between us. Not that we can't be friendly and do things together, but when push comes to shove, do you really want your best friend in the world who you're really familiar with coming and telling you that you're doing a bad thing and that you need to repent? You know, there has to be a level of authority that is maintained, and when you start becoming buddy-buddy pal friends, it blurs the line of authority. So you revere your parents, you have a fear of them, a reverence of them, which is why you call them mother and father, mom or dad, but not Leanne and Josh, Mike and Laura. There's an expression, familiarity breeds contempt. And it's true. When you start treating your parents like your best friends in the world, then how are your parents going to be able to discipline you? You've lost all the sense of reverence because the sense of reverence, that fear, is looking up at somebody who is greater than you and there is a gap of authority. There has to be that gap, that distance between the two. And, you know, being buddy-buddy friends mean you're crossing that gap to be right up next to them, which is a disruption. Then you don't revere them. I think, uh, uh, inaccurately probably, but it seems like uh, when you're talking about Josh and Dad here. Sure. Uh, with uh, Josh, there's a defined relationship. But then with Dad, there, it, it alludes to a different relationship. A much, yeah. A much closer relationship, but not a, uh, a uh, what I want to say, retail not a relationship. Not a friend. Yes. Much closer. Yes. There are. It. It does. It defines the relationship, and it. It separates the degrees of authority. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. It, it, Leave it at that. Yeah. I understand. I understand what you're saying, and that's right. It. It expresses what the roles are for each person involved. If you call somebody dad, then that means your role is as child, and that means that within your role you have a duty, but within dad's role, dad also has a duty. But when you are nothing but friends, and when you're on the same plane, then the duties are gone and it creates a completely different kind of a relationship. One without reverence or fear, and one where you're, you know, you're a little too collegial sometimes. That's why, you know, well, anyway, we don't need to do any more of that. Okay, and that is, and furthermore, just like a son honors his father, a servant his master which also Christ, of course, is the suffering servant. Christ uh, obeys his master. This is for the Christian too. <clears throat> so just like a son is gonna honor his father, the servant is gonna honor his master. What do we call Christ our? Let none but Christ our master be. From the hymn, Come Holy Ghost. Um, we want Christ to be our master, which means that we are going to be the servants of Christ, which means we're going to obey his authority. We're going to submit to him. Okay, let's speak this together. Again, a son honors his father, and a servant honors master. Yeah. Uh, what does God's word say to children? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Children is all children again. Obey your parents in the Lord, just like the marital relationship. It's not about what you think of the other person. It is all about submitting to Christ. You love because Christ loves, which means that everybody that Christ loves, you have to love too, because your love is Christ's love. So likewise, you submit, just like Christ submits. You listen to your parents, not because you think they're the best, most wonderful, fairest people in the world, but because the Lord has said, this is how you do it, and you obey them for Christ's sake. Christ submits to his Father, I submit to Christ, therefore I will submit to my parents too. I thought my parents were unfair most of my teenage years and didn't submit to them very well. Uh, which is why, you know, 
that it may go well with you and you enjoy long life, because I think my life was about to be put to an end. <laughs> no, uh, your, your life goes poorly when you go against the grain, when you swim against the stream. It's not that the Lord says, hey, you know, listen, if you don't want me to smite you, you better do what your parents say. No, it's, look, there's a promise here. If you obey your parents, if you submit to them, if you are humble, if you do, things are going to go better for you than if you don't. Swim with the stream, don't swim against it. It's a lot harder to kick against the goads than it is just to leave it alone. Your dad says, don't throw ball in the house, and you say, yes, dad, I won't throw ball in the house. Uh, Sirsha, oh, this is the last thing I'll say. Sirsha is obsessed with Ariel, if you haven't figured that out. And I asked her, why, I said, is Ariel a naughty girl? And she said, yes, Ariel, naughty. And I said, why is Ariel naughty? And she said, Ariel, no, listen, daddy. <laughs> Which is true. Life doesn't go as well when you don't follow the uh, authorities that are put over you uh, peaceably and in good order. Okay, kids, you can go to Sunday school. Morris. Do you suppose that uh, you were gaining your experiences as a younger person, you were gaining valuable experience when you be soon putting to use? Oh, uh, most certainly. With, there is such a thing as penance. With Sirsa. Yes, there is such a thing as penance, and I am... at it from a different perspective. Now. Yeah, I'm going through it now. <laughs> uh, and and will continue for many years, yes. And I think parents are enjoying every minute of it. They are. You know, this is funny. I've maybe told this story before. We, uh, we've been watching these home videos that my dad took from the old cassettes and has transferred to DVDs. And uh, boy, he put a lot of work into it. They've got menus and scene selections, and he put a whole, put them all in a case, and they're all numbered, and he made an Excel spreadsheet that tracks everything by timestamp. I mean, just, when my dad wants to do a project, he does it all the way. <laughs> which, is, which is actually, we have a sort of a family saying that you really Mike Ferguson to project. So you know, all I need to do is make a spreadsheet, but, my spreadsheet ends up being, you know, the next work of great, it's the next Rembrandt of, of, uh, of spreadsheets. And, you know, it, all it needed really to do was add, but I made it look so nice to do this. Well, you really Mike Ferguson that project, didn't you? Just a simple task, but then you do it just to the absolute, absolute, absolute best, putting more work in than you would have to, but, you know, the final product is better. So anyway, he did this and we've been watching, and there was one of these little scenes with me at my grandparents' house, I think it was the 4th of July, everyone was out in their pool swimming. And my great-grandparents, both sets of great-grandparents were there sitting on the patio chairs with my grandma and my mom and me, and my dad was filming, and I kept climbing up on the chair and jumping. And I had to be probably two, about, about what Searsha is now. And my mom, you could hear her, she kept saying, sit down, no. And that snap too. And, and I would sit down, and then a couple seconds later, I'd get back up again. And then it was maybe the third or fourth time, and my mom comes into the frame, and she grabs me, and she picks me up, and she says, No, I said, sit down. And then in the background, you hear my grandma say, Oh, this is just what you deserve, and I'm loving it. <laughs> and by golly, I've already heard that at least once from my mother. So, but yes, uh, you know, you learn if you're humble enough at a certain point in life to realize that you have learned a lesson, then you can take what you have learned and put it to good use. Turn around and address your penance the way your parents address theirs. <laughs> so. There was a famous circus cartoon many years ago. <clears throat> I think coming out of church, people cut it out and put it on our refrigerator, and it said something along the Humor thy father and mother. Yeah, humor thy father and mother. Boy, you know, it would have been a whole lot easier if I just humored them. Because I did know a lot more than they did, that's for sure. Okay. If the body is destroyed in death, well, first of all, is the body destroyed in death? Yes or no? Is, but is it destroyed? 
Okay. Ah, returns to dust. The body, and the body is destroyed. It is returned to the dust from whence it comes. Oh no! Like. No 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 no. No, the body, the body decomposes, the body goes back to dust. That's the confession of Ash Wednesday. From dust you are, O man, and to dust thou shalt return. So your body does go back to the dust. Job's confession, even when my skin is destroyed, this I know, that with my eyes I shall see. Which is a confession of the resurrection, because if your body is destroyed, how do you have eyes to see? What, what passage is that? Job? If your body is destroyed, then how is it that you can have eyes to see when Christ comes? This is what make one of the things that makes that confession so beautiful. See, this is this is the simple logic of it. If my body is destroyed, I don't have eyes. But I confess that when Christ comes, I will have eyes and I will look at him. Which means what? Sometime between the point where my body is destroyed and I see Christ, you're going to get a body with eyes so you can see. That's the resurrection. See, you know, the people like the Sadducees were kind of foolish. So whole deal with the Sadducees is that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. But even somebody like, you know, you say, well, what is the resurrection of the body really something that's taught through the Old Testament? Can you think of the resurrection being taught through the Old Testament? Well, yes. First of all, there's what Job says, but Job makes a confession of something he already knows, which is there's going to be a resurrection. How does Job know it? When Lazarus dies, Jesus goes to comfort Mary and Martha, and what does Martha say to him? If you'd been here. Yeah, okay, yeah, if you'd have been here. And he says, well, do you, do you believe? And she says, well, sure, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So she knows there's a resurrection of the body. Job knows there's a resurrection of the body. Abraham trusted that there was a resurrection of the body because otherwise he wouldn't have tried to sacrifice his son. Abraham was so confident that he even told all the servants, don't worry, we're going to go up to this mountain and then both of us are going to come back down. So there is explicit reference to the resurrection of the body. So even though your body is going to be destroyed, you know that it is going to be raised again. Now this is why the practice of cremation is one that it goes really kind of against the Christian confession because we put so much emphasis on the body. Even though the body is going to decompose, we keep the body together. Cremation is, to me, almost in a way it's like tempting God. Oh yeah, you're gonna, can you raise this? Ashes. Okay, but what's even worse than that, like as long, you keep the ashes together, some of the issue there is that not all of you's there, and they're not going to get every single bit of you there, which also means that they didn't get every single bit of your predecessor there, which means there's the possibility that everything that you have in your box is not quite everything that was the person you had, and maybe, you know, you went there with one grandma and you came back with a grandma and a quarter. See, there are issues there. That's just some black humor for you. There are some issues there. Here's another issue. Well, Dad really, really loved nature, so we're, we're going to have him cremated and then we're going to go up to the top of a hill and we're going to scatter his ashes to the four winds. Can God raise the body that is put to ash and scattered to the four winds? Yes, but does taking the cremated body and then scattering it to the four winds make a good confession of what the church believes? No. Yeah, the, the, to science and all that, I don't, that's a, that's a big tricky topic that I'm not prepared to talk about. Um, Organ donation. Some people don't want to donate their organs because they want to have everything. That's fine. I mean, I'm not against it, but again, that's all part of this. That's a part of a completely different topic. 
But needless to say, we treat the body with respect because the body matters, even though it's going to decompose, which confesses that the body is not going to, uh, the destruction of the body is not going to cause you not to exist. Just because your body is destroyed does not mean that you don't exist. Why? So your body, your body turns to dust, and then, well, I guess I don't exist anymore. The soul, that's where the soul comes in, in my opinion. Okay. The soul comes in, and, and that's the really important part of you. Mm, you're starting to fall into an error. Okay. And the error you're starting to fall into is saying, one, that the body you will have will be a body and not this body. And the other error is thinking that the soul is greater or more important than the body. What happens after Christ's resurrection? In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Christ, it says Christ was crucified and then uh, he rose again, and when he rose, the tombs were broken open, and many saints rose from the dead and confessed the gospel of Christ. That's a part of Matthew's gospel we don't remember, because it's just one little sentence right in there with the crucifixion that isn't a part of the rest of the resurrection narrative. It says, after Jesus rose, yeah, the, the, dead, the tombs broke open and the dead rose. And I told you about those icons of Jesus breaking open the tomb and he's pulling out not souls but bodies. He's pulling people up out of the grave, Adam and Eve, and there's like a chain of people all in the hands. Well, the soul is not any more important or less important than the body. The soul and the body are equals because the soul and the body fit together perfectly. Your, the entirety of your personhood is in the union of your soul to your body. So when Christ redeems you, he redeems the body and he redeems the soul. And when you are raised, you're going to be raised in this body, but it is, raised in, it is raised glorified and incorruptible. And we'll talk more about why the flesh is what it is and its relation to the soul in just a little bit here. But the soul and the body have to go together. They have to go together. That's one reason why death is the separation of the body from the soul. Death is when the union that is supposed to be there is no longer united. And then you have the body that put, is put into the ground and you have the soul that is safeguarded with Christ until the resurrection. Yes, Marla? You have your question face on. I do, but I don't want to sound stupid, so I'm just going to wait. Nobody sounds, stu nobody sounds stupid here, and I'd rather answer your question than risk not answering it. That's okay. Okay, Bill. Uh, we, we don't want to forget that the body, the physical body, is the creation of God. So, God, God hasn't forgotten that. No, that you are intended to be flesh and blood. Here's, this is the other thing. When God creates in the Garden of Eden, what does he make? Just about humanity. Now, I, don't care, I don't care about the plants and the animals. What does he make when he makes man? But what is it? But what is the living being? In, yeah, but it's in the uh, image of God or likeness of God. But yes, 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 yes. But what is it? He takes the dirt and what does he make? A man. What is a man made out of? That's what he is made from. But what is he? What am? What are you? Flesh and blood and bone. He takes the dust of the ground and he makes it into flesh and blood and bone and organ. Everything that you are, that's what he makes. And then what does he do with that flesh and blood animal? He breathes the spirit of life. He gives a soul. What is the difference between man and every other creature that God made? Every other living, creeping thing and flying thing and swimming thing on this earth? 
God did not breathe into them the breath or the spirit, the ruach of life. Only you did he do that for. Only you have that thing that sets you apart. That is why you have dominion. But God made flesh and blood. So that's the first thing that tells you the body that I have right now is important. The second thing should be what? Think about the person of the sun. Think about the big miracles that the sun, you know, the big festivals that the church celebrates in the first half of the church year about the sun. And there's a big mystery. It's one of the first celebrations that we have. The mystery of the... Yes, you're on the right track. Not quite the birth. Something before the birth. Conception. conception and the conception we would call the... The mystical event that the conception is. The... Uh, but, but about Jesus. The word... Becoming flesh, what's the word for that? The incarnation. Yes. So, if your flesh didn't matter, Jesus wouldn't have put it on. If your flesh was just here today, gone tomorrow, and I'm really a spirit person, he would have come as a spirit person to redeem the spirit. But he didn't. He came as flesh, he came as blood. He is God as man. God and man together. He is a living, breathing person, a human, flesh and blood. Because the flesh matters too. He doesn't come just to redeem the spirit. If he did that, you'd be all angel people. But you're not. You're flesh and blood people. You're better than angels. You are the crown of the creation, not the angels. In fact, what is the angel's job? To serve you. And why do the angels serve you? Pardon me? I said, because your wife won't. Because <laughs> your wife won't, he said. I'm not going not gonna to touch that. <laughs> no, see, this is a, the angels, this is a really good example question to show you this whole relationship. Why do the angels serve you? Be because they serve God. They serve you because they serve God. Mm, see, look at that. The angels rejoice in heaven at the fact that Jesus Christ becomes a man. They don't fly down to the shepherds and say, hey, it's pretty okay that he became a man, but we really wish he was an angel. But, you know, good for you guys. We'll, we'll celebrate with you. Glory to God in the highest. No, glory to God in the highest. He's come to you. Goodwill to people on earth. Humanity, the flesh matters. Your body matters. Listen, if your body didn't matter, then I wouldn't care what direction your body faced at the, at the graveside. I wouldn't care about how we roll you into the sanctuary. I wouldn't care about covering you up and having things look nice at a funeral. I wouldn't care about any of that. Heck, if your body doesn't matter, you know, I'll go out there with my gardening, my, my gardening clothes on and just dig a hole to dump you in. It doesn't matter, it's just the body, right? Because he's, he's now free from the body. Again, this is that heresy. This is Gnosticism. If you think that the body is less important than the soul, that's not what the church confesses. The church confesses an equality. The body and the soul are both important because the body and the soul together are what make a human being. The body is not what makes you human. The soul is not what makes you human. It is the union of the two, which is why humanity is unique. They are alone among creation. You're not an animal, and you're not an angel. You're not purely flesh and blood, and you're not purely spirit. You are both together. You're like a cool hybrid kind of creature, a mutant. We'll just wait for your X-Men powers to develop. Okay? But this is, this is the reality. The soul and the body have to be equal, and they must be viewed as equal. This is the issue with this heresy of Gnosticism. If the body is just going to, well, it's going to pass away, and eventually I'll be free from it. If you say, I'm looking forward to being free from my body, then you don't understand who you really are. Now, you aren't your body, but you're, not your bo but you're not your soul either. You are your soul and your body together. That is who you are. Questions about that? 
Yes. When we're reunited uh, with the body yes. at the resurrection, yeah. that body will be, what did you say, glorified and... It will be glorified and perfected. perfected. Your resurrected body is going to be the body you have right now, but no aches and pains. You're not going to need glasses. Your scars will all be gone. Well, maybe not. See, because if you're a martyr, if you're a martyr, there's this idea that the scars of the martyrs become their glorious dress in heaven. So like John the Baptist had his head cut off. But when you see John the Baptist in heaven, he'll have his scar there, but it'll be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Like one of those big ruffled collars from the, you know, the old paintings. Ah, yes, uh, Victorian ruffled collar, but it's going to be you know, gold or something like that. I don't know. But, but you see the wounds of the martyrs, and that is... Bec that it becomes a beautiful thing. But the point is, it is like your, it is your body, but better. It is your body without sin. So anything in your body that is something that comes to you as a result of sin will be gone. And then the question is, well, am I going to have all of my bionic limbs? Right? I paid good money for those. I'd like to take them into the kingdom of heaven with me. Well, you're not going to need him. You know, that's the thing. You're not going to be an artificial person. You won't have any artificial things in you. You won't need them. You won't, because you won't need them. You won't have knee pains or hip pains or shoulder pains or you won't have a bad heart. You won't have bad eyes. You won't have arthritis. See, then there's a question, well, what am I going to look like? I don't know. Think about the time in your life when you thought you looked the best whether that was in your youth or in your old age, whenever it was that you looked in the mirror and you thought, this is probably as good as I am ever going to look. That's what you're going to look like times infinity. Heaven's going to be a real fine-looking place. I'll tell you that. <laughs> because it's not just your beauty. It's the beauty of Christ that and the beauty of the glory of Christ in the resurrected flesh that all of a sudden transforms everybody, makes you more beautiful than you ever could have hoped to be. And you're going to know everybody. You're going to know everybody. And the thing is, in many ways, you're going to know them from what they did. You're going to be judged by your works, and when you get to heaven, you're going to see people, and you're just going to know them. Maybe you didn't know them in life, but sure, in death, you, all of you in the body are going to see each other and know each other. It's going to be like the best family reunion you've ever had. No fighting, no weird uncles, nothing. Just everything is perfect. Okay? But it is the body and the soul together. My grandpa once asked a really good question. He said, my, my pastor was talking about the resurrection, and, and my grandpa said, well, what about burials at sea? Like we, all, we always talk about the body that pops up out of the ground, but what about the burial at sea? You know, the, the body that's been put into the water and the fish come and, it, you know, what happens to that body? Said, <laughs> well, that's going to raise too. Don't, I mean, don't you think the Lord could do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, sure. But, you know, the point is, listen, don't think too hard about it. Because if you think too hard about it, you're going to come to a bad conclusion. You're going to be wrong. And not only are you going to be wrong, but you're going to be sad and tired. And I'd rather that you be energized and happy. And the simple truth is that when, that when Christ comes, he will raise all the dead. Even the ones that have decomposed and turned to dust. I mean, he made you out of dust once, didn't he? You think he can put those dust pieces back together? It'd be pretty easy. Yes? Of which hymn? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. The first half of that there, with beauty, that the first half... Oh, yes, my beauty, thy blood and righteousness are my beauty and my dress. Yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. So you're beautiful to God now insofar as you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And in the resurrection, you're going to be the most beautiful person in the world. You all are. You're all going to be the most beautiful people in the world because Christ has made you beautiful. That's why you can't say that Jesus, Jesus accepts me just the way I am. Does he? Let me tell you some things that Jesus has given you. Baptism. 
Confession and absolution. The Eucharist. The law. Those are just four things, but I could name more. Do you think, thinking about what those things are, those four things, thinking about what those are and what they are for, do you really think Jesus accepts you just the way you are? He sees the cross when he looks at me. And he knows that his son died for me. Okay, but if he has to look at the cross to see you, then does he really accept you the way you are? No. That's the thing. God loves you, but he knows you can be better. God loves you, and he knows that you can be better. And he loves you despite your faults, but in your faults, he says, listen, I love you. But, you know, you could use some work. You could, you could be more beautiful. Here are some things that are going to help you. Don't, and don't think I don't love you. That's why I'm giving you these things. He gives you all the things that you need to be better. God wants to make you acceptable. And on the last day, you will finally reach that point where he looks at you and say, says, come on in. You are perfect. Just like that, you're perfect. That'll come. Just don't think about it too hard. Christ is going to come. He's going to raise the dead. If you were buried at sea, well, he's going to raise, your, he's going to raise you. If you were cremated, he's going to raise you. No, what we do has to be, we strive to make a good confession. Lex orendi, lex credendi. The thing that we believe is the thing that we confess. And if we do something that doesn't agree with our confessions, we tend to start believing the thing we do, not the thing we confess. They go back, they go back together. Doctrine and practice. What you do informs what you believe, and what you believe informs what you do. Which is why we take care of the bodies. Yes, Marla? Yeah, but if he comes and raises the dead, what happens to the living? Like, what if I'm not dead yet? Then what happens to First, you get down on your hands and knees and you say, Thank God you finally came. Okay. Uh, then Christ makes you perfect. I mean, there's a transformation one way or the other. And then what happens to me? Well, then you're, then you're judged. Am I dead? No, you're living. Where? In the new creation. You're living... Uh, you're living the, you're living for the first time. Yeah, you're living for the first time. Because right now you're not really living, you're just dying for 104 years. You're living in Eden, four miles south of Craig. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's like this. The greatest among you is the one who shall serve. <laughs> uh, okay, this is why the Chronicles of Narnia is such a great thing that everybody should read. In the last Chronicles, and I don't know if this is how it's going to be. C.S. Lewis didn't know how this was going to be. But what happens is, all of a sudden, Aslan comes. And time, there is this giant father with a big beard and he is the one who embodies time and he time dies no more time time is done time ceases to exist and aslan says look there's a door up there and water starts rising and he says come on follow me further up and further in we're all going to go to this door and everybody who is alive goes to that door, and all of a sudden they see everybody that they knew before. Hey, wait! Didn't you die? Well, I'm here now! Further up and further in, let's all go through this door. And they look through the door, and it's exactly what they're leaving behind. And they walk through, and the door closes, and the door disappears. And they say, boy, this is strange. Aren't we just in the same place? And then they look around, and they say, wait, the green is more green. The, the stars are brighter. The sky is richer. The grass is softer. Oh, I feel different. I feel happy, like I could never be sad again. The food is better. Everything is just wonderful. There's nothing bad, nothing to complain about, nothing to cry about, nothing. It's the new creation. It's the creation the way it was supposed to be, a creation that's free from sin. Yes? I hate to say it's my opinion, but it is. You're allowed to have opinions. Yeah. Start with that. 
the what we're promised in heaven. Sure. Yeah. Is the the uh, the extent of what we're promised in heaven so exceeds our own uh, experiences now that we. It's my opinion that we cannot even imagine how glorious that's going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have the intellectual capacity to even try and gather it up. It's nope. just going to be so magnificent. Yes. That uh, your opinion is correct. I mean, we can. Goodness for one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can talk about facets of it. In fact, there was somebody that I came to talk to me just this week, and I, we were talking about this. What is heaven going to be like? I know. I know exactly what it's going to be like, but I also don't know exactly what it's going to be like, and I couldn't possibly tell you. But I'll tell you what it's going to be like. See, there's this, I can tell you all of these different little pieces about what it's going to be like. So I think heaven's going to be like Mound City, but better. I think it's going to be like a small community with everybody who loves each other and cares about each other, a bubble that's sort of apart from so many of the problems of the world. I think heaven's going to be a church service that never ends, much to the chagrin of some. Uh, I think that heaven is going to be a, a wedding reception with the best wine and the best food you've ever tasted in your entire life, and you don't have to worry about getting up the next morning. Just drink as much of that wine as you want. I think that heaven is going to be like the new creation, looking around and seeing creation that you recognize, but something is different. And somehow, even the stars in the sky look better. I think heaven's going to be the greatest family reunion in the history of existence. Now add all those things together and tell me what it means. Yeah, I can't. You can't. All that we can do is say, this is, these are the little bits of things that we know and think and philosophize and theologize about. But at the end of the day, you don't know how glorious it's going to be because you don't have the capacity to understand it. You don't have the capacity to understand what it means to be in the presence of God. That's another part of what it means to be. What is heaven? Heaven is life being lived for the first time. You'll never have really lived until you, until you live in heaven. Because all of a sudden, everything is right. Your body doesn't break down. It works. Everything is perfect. And you're in the presence of God. You don't have to hide from him and he doesn't have to hide his face to you. It's unveiled, it's unbridled, it's the entire glory of God and you know him in a way that is more intimate than you've ever been able to know him in your life here in this veil of tears. That's why the Eucharist is the veil between heaven and earth because communion is the closest you get to God. His flesh and blood in you but it's, there's the veil there. You've got your toes right up against it, but what's behind the veil? Ugh, there's some shadowy figures, but I can't make them out. I don't quite know. But the hand comes out and gives me this, and I eat it, and I want to go through, but I can't go through yet. It's intimate, by the way. That's why saying that you're a Christian, but you don't want to go to church is an oxymoron. You can't be a Christian who goes to church any more than you can be a married couple that don't have sex. Where's the, where's the giving and the receiving? Where's the union? Where's the love? Where's the intimacy? Where is it? If you don't have it, then it isn't there. And the Lord says, here I am for you. Come and be intimate with me. Let me hold you. Let me give you myself. Receive all the fullness of what I am that you're able to receive in this world. And know that this, even this, as good as it is here, is only a foretaste of what is to come for you. And we say, boy, I can't even imagine. And you mean it sincerely because you can't even imagine. Which is why we say you're not, you, your body will go to dust and your body will go to the, the fish if you're buried at sea or the body will, whatever will happen to the body. But you are not destroyed. Your soul is safeguarded with Christ. You slumber awaiting the resurrection. Even the prayers of the church talk about it that way. Oh, rats. That reminds me, I was going to get a prayer from my little pastoral care companion. It's that little black book that I carry around. And... Uh, I had found this prayer just this week, uh, and there was a whole thing in there about uh, you know, safeguard these precious loved ones until the day when you open their eyes and they see you face to face. Safeguard them. So we, we, their bodies might be 
decomposing as they slumber, but they aren't gone. If you believe that when you die you become nothing, you just cease to exist, which is kind of the mentality of this current generation. The whole, you only live life once. YOLO! You only live, you only live once. That movement. Well, uh, no, nothing matters after I die, so I might as well just do everything. Oh, hey, let's go crazy, because, well, you only live once, and then you die, and you're gone. I've got to make my mark on history. Got to experience it while I can. Good grief, grow up. <laughs> really. It's this idea that when I'm gone, I'm gone. And that leads to some really crazy things. This is, first of all, it's a theology, a false theology called annihilationism. That when you die, you're just <laughs> annihilated, gone, zapped out of existence. Well, that's kind of silly, isn't it? I mean, does, are, let's, let's follow some simple logic here, shall we? Does God exist even if you die? Yeah, yes. Why does God exist even if you die? He has no beginning and no end. He has no beginning and he has no end. God is, yeah, God is eternal. God is infinite. Okay, so if God is infinite, then it really doesn't matter if you die. That really doesn't affect God. But how were you living in the first place? Where, is, where was the source of your existence? In God, in your creator. God makes you. God is eternal. When you die, do you think that God just stops existing so that all of his creation just simply ceases to exist? If your root is in the one who is eternal, then you should say that as long as he is, I am. That's why, so Descartes, you know Descartes? So he said, you know, I think therefore I am, which is silly. What if you can't think? Does that mean you don't exist anymore? And to be frank, a lot of the thoughts you think aren't thoughts that are worth being a celebration of your existence. Probably about 80% of them at least. That's being generous. So what's a better way to say it? How do you know that you exist? Because God exists. And you have your source in Him. If God is, I am. Therefore, when I die, he couldn't possibly just let me go to nothing because he isn't nothing. I live because he wants me to be alive. He has made me. God doesn't take his creatures and say, here's a life. Yeah. See what you do with it. Oh, you really wasted that one. Well, game over for you. Now you're done. That's just silly. Especially if you consider the fact that man is body and soul. Maybe if you were nothing but body, okay, then you might be able to make an argument for that, but the fact that you are body and soul together means that you can't just be annihilated. And there, so there are some really weird things that come from this, you know. Like, uh, have you heard of the green, green burial? What they do is they make you into a tree. and then you become a tree. And that's almost like, you know, I don't know, some kind of Buddhist reincarnation or Hindu reincarnation. I'm going to come back as a tree. It'd be tough if you were in California, wouldn't it? Would be. Forest fires. Yeah. Put to the test if God's really going to raise you, huh? <laughs> yes. If God is going to resurrect Who said he was only going to raise the believers? Well, I mean, judge them. I'm sorry. He's going to judge everybody, and everybody who is dead is going to be raised. So he has to give it up on the ones that are. Oh, he never gives up on anybody. If someone gives up, it's you. You give up on your neighbor, or you give up on yourself. But God never gives up on you. That's why God is the hound of heaven. 
He's the hound that chases you down, and even when you kick at him and want him to run away, he still keeps coming back to you. God is irrational love. You know the love of a teenager? Oh, mom and dad, I'm in love. That irrational love of a teenager that's going to do anything and everything, just throw caution to the winds. We're going to run away and we're going to elope. And we're going to live in a mansion. <laughs> I'm not speaking from experience on that. Hey, the irrational love of the teenager is the love that God has for you. What is God not going to do for you out of love? He is so irrational that he's, that he's going to go hunting for that one lost penny and throw a $10,000 block party to celebrate the fact that he found a penny under the couch cushion. Does that sound like a rational, logical thing for somebody to do? Hey, what's this party about? Wow, caviar? Ooh, this is fancy, isn't it? What, what's, the, what's the occasion? Oh, I found that missing penny. What? I found a penny under my couch cushion. It had been lost for so long. What do you call a person like that? You call them loco. It's completely irrational. What kind of a, a good cattleman... Let's see, I'm, I'm putting it in not shepherding terms. What kind of a good cattleman has a hundred cows in a pasture that is not fenced in at all and doesn't, doesn't watch them? And then counts them one day and says, well, one is missing. And then leaves all of them behind just to do whatever they want to do, unsupervised, to go see if he can find that other lost one. And you're going to leave all of those animals unsupervised? You're going to let them do whatever they want? You want to, you're going to want those animals crossing the highway? I mean, it's silly. It's irrational. No, nobody's going to do that. I've got to make sure that whatever I have stays together so I don't lose another one. No, 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 no. I go back to that when I rented that pasture. Everybody else's fences were really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? So you said that God never stops loving you. Yes. Even after you're dead? <laughs> well, of course. If he, if he stopped loving you after you had died, why would he safeguard your soul? Why would you matter? Why wouldn't he just annihilate you? Well, I loved you. So then, let's say a person, let's say I've been really bad and I'm, so after a person dies, they're, uh, like, like if you're doomed for heaven or hell, okay. and you die, that can change? Like if, well, I'm not saying that there's... If you reject God and you say, that's my final offer, I don't really want you, God will, in love, say, because I love you, I will give you what you want. And so but, that never changes. No. But, his, but the fact that he loves doesn't factor into that. He always loves. Here's, here's an example. If he loved you, he wouldn't send you to hell. Mm, that's an argument of the world. That's an argument of the world. If the father really loved his son, he wouldn't have given him his inheritance and let him run off with it. To squander it, right? You see, the, the father loves the son, and the son demands the inheritance, and the father, in love, gives him the inheritance. The son says, I wish that you were dead. And not only do I wish you were dead, to me, you already are dead. And I don't care about you. I hate your guts. You're dead. Give me the money that I'm supposed to get when you die in the body, because to me, you're already dead. And the father says, here you go. Do you think the father knows what the son's going to go and do with it? Probably. When the, when the brother says, don't you know he wasted your living? Like the father's like, yeah, no duh, Sherlock. Thanks for telling me that. I kind of knew what he was going to do with it. So does, the, does he give it away because he stopped loving him? Is it bad of him to do that? And when the son comes back, he welcomes him with open arms and loves him. See? And the other son is angry about it. You shouldn't have done it in the first place. And now you love him. You should cast him out. No, I love him. That's irrational. God always loves. Let's, let me, let's put, give you this example. Say that you are a parent who lose a child. And the child that you lost wasn't, you know, your, your good son. It was your delinquent son. 
Your delinquent son you had a falling out with when they were in their mid-twenties. You really hadn't talked to them. You haven't seen them. You don't know your grandkids. You don't know how many grandkids you have. And you find out that they die. Do you stop loving your son? No. No. If you can't stop loving your son, even when your son does that to you, how much more than will God not stop loving you, even when, even, you know, if you should reject him? That's the thing about hell. And we have to stop here. And, and we'll have a whole thing. I'm going to talk about what hell is and what heaven is and all of this stuff. We'll have more about it. What is, what it, you know, all the different facets of it. But part of what hell is, is the Lord saying, is this what you really want? Because I love you and I want you to have what you want. I want the best for you, but I can't force love on you. That's the thing. Love has to be given freely and received freely. And when, when it comes push to shove and you say, I really don't love you and I want to be separated from you, he says, okay, I will give you what you want. And that is the scariest thing, that eventually the Lord really will give you what you are asking for. That's the scariest thing. C.S. Lewis says there's really only two people on Judgment Day. The people who said to the Lord, thy will be done, and the people to whom the Lord says, thy will be done. Does that sort of make sense? Okay. We need to stop there. Uh, I'll see you in church.